0: And welcome to the Earthside Echo, your source for all the latest dispatches from Earthside. In this episode, we rejoin Captain Edmonton and his crew. In part one of the story, their dirigible, the Grace of Dover, was downed by a mysterious force. They now find themselves fighting for survival against the gibbering hordes who have infested the drowned streets of London. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of The Fire at St Paul's. in, hurry, hissed the woman in the prow of the boat. She was wrapped up like a beggar in a blanket, leaving only a glimpse of a pale face with dark hair as they scrambled by her. He's in the river again. You're lucky not to be in his belly already. Finally, she pushed them away with a splintered plank while her equally swaddled companions in the stern steered. The skiff had lost its oars, but the shoals of wreckage clogging the river gave enough purchase to pull the overloaded little craft steadily along. "'You're lucky we had your shots,' the woman eventually said, "'keeping her voice barely louder than the splashing. "'There was an accent to her words "'that Edmonton couldn't quite place from her whisper. "'The water is far colder than you realise. "'You might not have managed the swim.' "'I believe we would have made the Tower of London in good order,' "'Edmonton answered a little stiffly. "'Then that would have been the end of it,' she said. "'There are fires in the Tower, not natural ones.' Edmonton's retort died on his lips, as he looked to his left. The Tower of London was barely more than an outline in the fog, but it was clearly an island now, cut off by the frigid waters. And that wasn't all. Floating up from the top of the tower was a flickering aurora, a streamer of pink and white light, only visible because of the dimness, disappearing up into the grey miasma. "'Ah, you see it,' said the woman, with just a hint of satisfaction." talked with some survivors that claimed a new breach opened up inside the tower. Probably something to do with all the soul stones the state keeps locked away in there, or maybe... She shrugged. Whatever the reason, anything you find inside those walls is likely worse than out. Edmonton didn't answer. Now that he had his bearings, he could better visualize how far ahead the water stretched and how much of the city was submerged. How many portals were there? This catastrophe dwarfed the word invasion. How had London, of all cities, been caught so thoroughly unprepared? "'How has the—' He began, too loud, and she angrily motioned for him to watch his voice. He looked pointedly at the plank she was steering with them, as they bumped and splashed, but she shook the look off. "'There is so much,' she whispered, gesturing at the bobbing flotsam all around them. "'I think they don't care.' The sounds are all around them, but voices, voices they get very interested in. At that moment, from the depths of the river fog behind them, came the most hellish bellow Edmonton had ever heard. It began as a thrumming rumble, and rocketed up through the scale, fading in and out from a creaking groan to a shrill whistle-shriek, dancing jaggedly through the octaves before it dropped back to the original growl. She waited until the sound had faded, before giving Edmonton a meaningful look. All night, he was up and down the river. I think they like the water. We must get to land. The woman's two crewmates hissed curses and began to recklessly shove them forward, the skiff rocking and bumping. They floated over to where the bridge would have joined the bank, with buildings on either side, but all Edmonton saw in front of them was debris-clotted water stretching away into the fog. Then he looked behind them. The giant was coming toward them up the middle of the flood-swollen river, but the water barely came to its belly. It was far away, but the surge it pushed ahead of itself was still enough to rock the skiff. The men swore again, this time loudly and freely, as they leaned back and forth to keep their boat steady. The giant shoved a half-sunk ferry aside with one great hand and gave another rolling basso profundo cool from its circular moor. As that terrible sound died away, "'the gibbering of the water-crawlers struck up again. "'Not far, not far,' muttered the woman, "'rummaging something rag-wrapped out of the bottom of the skiff. "'The water was shallow enough now "'that her crewmates pulled them along the ground underneath "'like a punt along a canal. "'They picked up genuine speed at last, "'but they were still well short of the line of flotsam "'that marked the water's edge "'when the skiff lurched, crunched, and came to a halt. "'We're grounded!' Private Hog shouted over the noise, peering over the side. You got to push us back, missy. No, she called back. No, something is... There was another grinding sound as a skiff tilted back the other way. Rising up past the gunwale came a swirling conical shell, peaked like a sea snail's and studded with wicked, curving bone thorns. The grinding sound came from spikes scraping through the wood of the skiff's hull. A third shell breached the water directly ahead of them, making a beeline for the boat, and as the ones underneath it gave another heave, they capsized. The giant was still closing in. The water was freezing, shocking, and for a moment all Clifford could do was flash back to the airship. He had been saved from drowning up there to drown down here. Then his limbs unseized, and he lurched to his feet with a gasp, coming up out of the water to the sound of screaming. Their boatmen toppled against one of the spiralling shells when they went over, and was pinned by it, shell spikes embedded deep in the meat of his arms and chest. The second shell tilted back, shrugging off the broken skiff. A bundle of thin and armed legs quested out from under the shell's overhang, and their clawed tips pulled the impaled man under the water. Both shells tilted forward over the spot where he'd vanished, rocking back and forth. Bright red blood welled up between them. Mako! screamed the man's companion from the water, She seized her boating pole and started beating it against one of the shells, but the creature beneath didn't seem to notice. Lafferty grabbed her by the arm and towed her away as she shrieked curses and oaths. Hogg and Palfrey Man were just ahead of them, supporting a coughing greenway, barely aware that the third shell was silently cutting through the water to intercept them. O'Neill staggered up beside Clifford and fired from his hip, but the shot ricocheted off the shell and kicked up a plume of water. Clifford fired next as they pushed forward, cracking the shell, but not breaking it. The shell reared away, and a bestial face grinned out at them from under its rim. O'Neill aimed an almost point-blank shot at its snaggled-toothed mouth, and in reply, a pair of throat pouches bulged as the beast squirted a stream of green mucus onto O'Neill's chest and face. O'Neill howled, and smoke poured from his skin as he slapped at his flesh with hands that dissolved where they hit the green sludge. Clifford roared, batted a snapping foreclaw away with his rifle barrel, and shot it in the face, again and again, as it mulled, tried to back away, and finally sank back down into the water. O'Neill was submerged, face down, his head horribly misshapen and not moving. Clifford pushed past the body and toward the shore, conscious of the other two monster whelks swimming toward them with the stately speed of icebergs. Their pace would have been comical on land, but here with the cold crippling their limbs. It was a chase. Clifford dropped to one knee in the shallows, his numb fingers failing him as he tried to reload, and the lead whelk closed in on him. A barrage from the rest of the section hammered its flank, grazing the thick shell and making the whole creature shudder. Clifford sighted carefully on the weakened spot and fired a shot that broke the shell open, then two more that stopped the creature dead. It sank down into the shallows as a slick of Ecore. Formed around it. The booming blast of Edmonton's gun went off as the captain shot at the giant, still a ways off and slowed by the amount of debris. The last of the shelled monsters crawled out of the water toward the woman from the skiff, who met it head on. She shrugged off her wrappings and strode through the shallow water, revealing a grey uniform topped with a long tailed burgundy coat. There was a sturdy steel war mace clutched in her hand, and with each arcing swing, she smashed a snapping claw crushed one armoured leg and bludgeoned the armoured creature. She then spun to dodge a stream of toxic spit and crumbled the thing's face with an underhanded swing. The shell toppled ponderously over onto its side as the monster inside it keened and thrashed the stumps of its limbs. She turned on her heel and left it. That will be enough, she said to no one in particular. These beasts are not kind to their wounded. Where to now? Greenway asked. "'We have to get to our own lines, don't we? "'There'll be... there'll be somewhere we can get to, won't there?' "'Clifford looked for Edmonton and found him up the slope, "'eye to his gun sight, oblivious to the battle. "'Tiny ratcheting sounds came from the bipod mechanism "'as Edmonton continued to fire at the slowly approaching giant. "'What a lovely big chap you are,' he murmured. "'We'll wire your skeleton and stand you up in the museum.' Perhaps a portrait of me opposite, so I can keep an eye on you. What do you say? They'll make do with plaster versions of those tasks of yours, though. I'll polish the originals and hang them in my library, the north wall, where they'll catch the firelight in the evenings. Just over the The report of his gun drowned out the final detail. Captain Edmonton! Clifford shouted over the four-octave bellow of pain from the river. I heard, Corporal. Move the men up New Cannon Street toward St. Paul's, if you please. I can hurt this thing enough to distract it, but if I fail, it could be on top of us for the price of a couple of hits. I'm afraid we'd be rather stuck. Sir, if I may... But Edmonton's head snapped up from the sight. Run! He roared. They ran with everything they had toward the streets. Through the thick grey air, a broad-shouldered tugboat arced toward them. It had a fat scarlet chimney that traced a line of colour against the fog. The boat left a trail of water in the air behind it as it flew toward them. The tugboat smashed nose-first into the street. The crumpling steel and splintering stone deafened all sound and thought. Slivers of window glass and chunks of coal flew through the air. Hogg barely managed to look up before he vanished under the crashing missile. Toppling onto its side, the blast hurled Hatton backwards and crushed Lafferty as he tried to roll clear. What? What did? Greenway staggered away from the wreck, eyes staring. We made the shore! It's not fair! The chassis of a horse cart flew from the fog and shattered to matchwood against a wall three floors up. Still in the wreckage, Edmonton took aim again and put a bullet into the monster's right eye. It took a faltering step back, clawed the air in front of its face and filled the fog with its rage but any thought Edmonton had of besting it melted away when it picked up a long-hulled river barge. Edmonton froze as the beast held the barge high and stepped forward to throw it. We are not done, Edmonton told it under his breath. He hoisted his rifle and ran up the street chased by the roar of collapsing masonry as the flung barge ploughed into the water-weakened buildings behind him. How can you be sure they're not still after us? Hatton finally demanded. Be sure? Their unlikely companion had introduced herself as Jean Barbet, the Guild's aide to the High Commissioner. Who can be sure? What is sure anymore? Sure that they are more likely to find us with you shouting, maybe? They followed the new Cannon Street's ascent from the flooded river's edge up through the North Bank Reclamation toward Ludgate Hill and St Paul's Cathedral. Patches of rank-smelling silt and seaweed were scattered across the streets. Once they crossed New Bow Lane, they took shelter in a wrecked townhouse as a parade of enormous blood-red beasts, like grotesque millipedes, came weaving and winding up the street. They passed over and under one another, without pause. Clawed feet tapped a constant tattoo on the paving, with disturbingly arrhythmic clicks and scrapes from tusk jaws. Abruptly, one peeled off plunged its head into a gap in the raised terrace across from them and reared back out with a scorched human corpse. "'We are calling those carcinoi,' Barbet whispered as they watched the grisly scene. "'They're almost as bad as the armoured ones.' Karkinoy? Edmonton gave the guild officer a strange look. "'They do not seem very crab-like to me.' A pained look flashed across her features. "'Most of the initial fighting happened in the dark,' Marco, you remember, from the boat? He came up with the name. It wasn't until hours later that we realised they were more like centipedes. Hatton peeked out, watching as the creatures slowly disappeared into the fog. We could call them... What's the Italian for centipedes? The name this. Barbet's steely reply was accompanied by an icy glare, and Hatton paled and fell silent. Look, there... Edmonton pointed across the street to the third story of the building opposite. Two desperate faces stared down at them from a window, their eyes wide with hope. Survivors! Bobbie sighed, her anger dissipating into the fog. We've been spotting small groups like that all morning. Better that they stay inside and keep their heads down while they wait for relief forces. The creatures don't seem to be wasting much effort on searching houses for meals. It took a few moments. "'for Edmonton to look away from the window. "'We are the relief forces, Miss Barbet.' "'There was a brief huff that, under better circumstances, "'might have qualified as a laugh from Barbet. "'Great job of it so far. "'Come, let us get going before seeing circle back.' The straggling survivors, Edmonton, Greenway, Hatton, Clifford and Palfreyman, as well as Barbet and her distraught navigator Maria, slowly trudged through the shattered streets of London, the sounds of distant gunshots and screams drifting to them, ghost-like, through the fog at regular intervals. Barbet motioned for them to stop as they reached Ludgate Circus and the Imperial Maritime Bank. They were not out of the fog, but it was thinner and lighter. They exchanged grins at the thump and crack of guns from the airships above them, However hard the fight, the Empire refused to concede the London sky. Edmonton spotted footprints, crossing a patch of muddy silt at the base of the bank steps, that lopped and veered, but made a definite course toward Fleet Street. He knelt down to inspect them. They were fresh and filled with water, but their outlines were still sharp. ''These are human,'' he said, looking up and down the trail they made. ''A large group of survivors. We should try to find them before...'' ''Best not, Capitaine?'' Barbet towed one of the footprints with her boot. See the way they've walked? More is the broken ones. Ones who have lost their minds. Broken ones? Edmonton climbed to his feet. Whatever do you mean? Barbet shook her head. Side effect of the burning man. The longer it remains overhead, the more it gets into people's heads and makes them different. Greenway grabbed Barbet's arm and spun her around to face him. "'How do you know that? How do you know anything about that thing in the sky?' "'Quiet!' Edmonton cut Greenway off with a stern glare before turning back to Barbet. "'What do you know about the Burning Man?' "'Little more than you, I think. I was out in the streets when the...' uh... She waved a hand. "'Le happened. The Burning Man had been hovering above the city for weeks.' Some people started becoming strange, acting strange. Then the portals opened in the sky. At first, just the water. Then animals dead at first, but then live ones, all over the city, all night. Fewer by far once dawn came. I think even with the fog so thick, they do not like the light. They are not sure how to live in it. You know more than you're letting on, Greenway snapped, tugging on her arm again. "'She was in disguise on the river, remember? "'They know all about the Burning Man and his monsters, dirty bastards. "'Sarge was right.' "'Corporal Clifford started towards Greenway, "'his voice little more than a growl. "'Greenway, shut up. "'Nah, you see, Sarge was saying this was all guild doings, "'getting at us for kicking them out and—' "'Private Greenway, you will shut your flapping gobshite mouth "'and stand watch the way you were ordered, you horrible little man, are we clear?' Clifford blasted him in a single unbroken shout. Greenway gulped and finally quieted as he meekly released Barbet's arm. Barbet rolled her eyes. "'Do that again,' she said. "'Just a little louder. This time maybe the monsters will hear you all the way down to the river and come find us after all. If they eat me before you, then will you agree I am not your enemy today?' Off to the side, Maria made a faint whimpering sound, Palfreyman glanced at her, then looked back to Barbet. If you please, Miss Barbet, he asked, making them jump with his sudden question. Perhaps you could tell the captain what you were about when you met us. He had taken a gash from a shell spike back at the river, and his voice was reedy with pain. Hearing from someone who's already survived a night in this city could help us a great deal. A little more of the tension went out of the air. "I had a plan to reach higher ground," she said. "Once I knew the sun was up, we saw the creatures did not like that." "Somewhere safe to hold up, eh?" Edmonton said. "Sensible girl, that explains the bridge." "Until your flying balloon crashed into it," Babet pointed out. "Now I wish to reach the Cathedral with you. Your mission is my mission. Bickering over which is better, Britain or the Guild, does not keep us alive any longer. I couldn't agree more, Edmonton pointed down the way. Shall we continue to the cathedral then? Clifford, keep an eye open for these broken ones. They left the bank twenty minutes later, scanning for movement in the increasingly thin fog. Greenway and Hatton went first, Edmonton and Barbet a few paces behind, and then Palfreyman and Maria. The young navigator refused outright to remain behind, and Maria's white-knuckled grip on the stevedore's hook she took from her belt betrayed her nervousness. Corporal Clifford brought up the rear, keeping watch on the street behind them, every so often looking ahead to see Edmonton and Barbet in quiet conversation as they walked. He saw maddening little movements in his peripherals too, but there was never anything there when he focused. "'Nerves, old son,' he told himself. "'Just watch those nerves.' "'He looked behind him again and moved on. "'It was impossible. "'Barbet's voice was a quiet whisper, "'just loud enough for Edmonton to hear "'as they walked through the streets. "'Wills of water from nowhere. "'Streets smashed. "'So many dead. "'I saved Marco and Maria from a collapsed building. "'Pulled them and some others out of rubble to safety. "'So we thought. "'Her expression darkened. "'The beasts you have seen were in the water.' "'Killing them, them killing us, "'this place to that place, then to another, "'all in the dark and le deluge. "'Wherever we were, the monsters came for us. "'The gibbering hordes,' Edmonton said, "'and she raised an eyebrow. "'That is what command call them on the radio.' "'He went on to explain. "'It is a good name,' she said. "'They were everywhere. "'Some like animals, some like... "'I cannot describe... "'in the air and water. "'There were not so many of us left "'by the time we found the ship.' "'The one you met us in?' "'No, no. "'A steamship, ocean liner, "'pushed into buildings on the bank. "'We sheltered there in the night "'with her crew and others.' "'Lucky you found it,' Edmonton said, "'but Barbet shook her head in response. "'They wanted to be found. "'They lit her up and sounded her on "'all through the night. "'They knew it would attract the beasts.' "'but they wanted survivors to know "'there was a place they could go. "'She was still unconquered "'when we left her this morning. "'Such valor! "'But in the morning, Maria, "'she lost her brother.' "'Jean solemnly said, and "'then quieted her voice "'after noticing Maria's head "'peeking upward "'after hearing her name mentioned. "'She asked me if I would leave the ship "'and help her search for him. "'And once we found her brother, we... "'Her voice faltered for a moment.' "'Well, soon after we saw airships, "'then the shooting, we came to find you.' "'Her brother was alive?' oui, Captain. "'That was her brother, Marco, who died in the ambush. "'The other man on the boat.' "'Edmonton let his eyes close for a moment. "'Heavens, that poor woman!' "'I'm fine!' "'Maria slipped out across between a whisper and a shout, "'having had enough of the two speaking about her.' It's... it's fine. Edmonton looked back at Maria and gave a nod in an attempt to express his empathy. Barbet's expression was concerned as she lowered her voice even further. I do not think she is fine. Edmonton watched Maria for a silent moment. She will be Miss Barbet. She's British. After that announcement, they all walked in silence for a time as the road steepened. "'The cathedral was not far. Where are you coming to St. Paul's?' Babet asked, surprising him. "'I saw it from the air this morning,' he revealed, "'moments before something destroyed our ship. "'I don't know what I saw, but it convinced me "'that the gibbering hordes are not the only insanity "'that has befallen this city. "'If there is something profaning that fair place, "'then I shall kill it. "'If that helps to break London of this fever nightmare, "'so much the better.' A focal point, she confirmed, lowering her voice even further. "We, oui, the broken ones seem drawn to certain places in the city. I have noticed these places, even in the days before Le Deluge. The Serpentine in Hyde Park, another at Westminster, where the bridge joins the bank, a street corner in Hackney, just like any other corner I could see, but they gathered there, all staring upward, and saw the cathedral. "'Even when the small breeches began to appear in the air, "'they paid no attention. "'Who are they, Miss Barbet?' "'As I said,' she answered, "'lowering her voice more than ever and pointing up the hill. "'The broken ones.' Eleven! Eleven! "'A matronly woman in a tartan shouted as she noticed them coming up the hill.' The eleven is correct, eleven is correct, eleven is standing still and it all breaks, it all breaks. I could see the faces, said a shuddering young clergyman beyond her, but the faces weren't burning, which means the measure is tilted. I can't touch it, screamed a bearded man in a grey suit next to him. How can I not touch it? They stared up at the madmen on the hill, trying to make sense of their numbers. There were dozens of them, all shouting and raising their hands toward the sky and the burning man that floated far overhead, like a bright star pinned to the sky. "'Up the hill the king's man comes,' said a thick-set, red-haired woman. "'And the lady who carries the ram!' giggled a man in a clerk's suit, his pince-nez reflecting indigo flames that weren't there. One by one, the members of the mob began darting down the hill, "'crude, blood-spattered weapons clutched in their dirty hands. "'Captain,' Colonel Clifford tore his eyes away from the mob "'and cast a sideways glance at Edmonton. "'These are citizens of the Crown. We can't—' "'Edmonton grabbed him by the arm and pulled him backwards with the rest of the survivors. "'Take up defensive positions. These are not your countrymen.' "'Through his monocle and the lens of his rifle, "'the mob, with a blistering legion of smokeless flame— "'linked together through a chaotic web of leaping, swirling fire. "'He took careful aim at the man in the clerk's suit, "'and a moment later, Edmonton's rifle kicked "'and the man fell to the ground, "'a bullet hole drilled neatly through his pince-nez. "'The others followed Edmonton's lead, "'taking whatever cover they could "'as they laid down a withering salvo of fire. "'Even as their bullets cut down the madmen,' Those who had not suffered lethal wounds to the head or chest continued to crawl on the ground toward the soldiers, their features screwed up into leering grins. Hatton swore as he shoved his last magazine into his rifle. They're turning! We don't have the ammunition to finish this, Captain! The gunfire had attracted the attention of the mob, and one by one their heads turned toward the group as the outermost cultists started to stagger their way toward them. "'And the wicked and wise alike shall be damned,' caroled a youth through blooded lips. "'While he's up in the sky a-burning,' chorused a dozen of them together. As though the words had opened up a dam of people, the mob surged down the hill, shouting nonsense and screaming wordless ululations in equal measure. Edmonton was already stowing his rifle, Clifford, take Greenway and Maria and draw the mob away from the cathedral. Barbet, Hatton and Palfreyman, you three fall back with them, but circle back as quickly as you can. I need you to get to the cathedral and lure the vicar to a window. Clifford saluted and took off at a quick run, with the others following after him. There was little discipline or formation to their retreat. They had only moments before the mob would be upon them. Still, Barbet remained behind, her gaze flickering between Edmonton and the jeering cultists. El we know which window? Edmonton paused in the mouth of an alley and looked back at her. Pick one; I shall improvise. Then he was gone, and a moment later, Barbet was racing to catch up with the others. The crowd of howling congregants stampeded forward. Some leapt and shouted. Some ran full tilt down the hill, lost their footing, and were trampled by their fellow worshippers. Barbet had managed to duck into an alley, move one street down, and work her way back to the top of the hill. Her mace crushed the skulls of two stragglers, one after the other, and Hatton clubbed another in the leg with his rifle before smashing its butt into his face. Palfreyman made the mistake of looking back down the hill. His face turned pale, and he took an involuntary step backwards. The cultists had caught up with Clifford's group, and though they were too far distant, it was not hard to make out the sounds of gunfire, as Clifford and Greenway emptied their clips into the surging tide of madmen. When the last of their ammunition ran out, they used the butts and flaps of their rifles to shove people aside, but it was a losing battle. Palfreyman jumped, as Hatton placed a hand on his shoulder. "'Come on,' Hatton murmured, turning the shaken soldier away from the scene. "'Stiff a lip! Remember the mission!' Barbet ventured into the cathedral first, followed by Hatton and Palfreyman. The beautiful white walls had been defaced with paint, and from every side leering, poorly drawn representations of the Burning Man glared out at them. Here he was depicted holding a golden sceptre and floating above a burning city. There he was reaching down toward desperate sinners, offering them his hand as they writhed in agony. "'This isn't right,' Palfreyman murmured. He wasn't a religious man, but even so there was a certain quality about the crude drawings that bothered him. It was as though any sense of taste had been replaced with naked intensity. Barbet motioned for him to be quiet, then pointed upward. The two soldiers craned their necks as she directed, only to find a dozen twisting vistas staring back at them. The cathedral ceiling was a twisting patchwork of dimensional rifts, their borders shivering where they came into contact with each other. One portal led to a charred, blasted desert, That appeared to have been scorched black by ancient fires. Even a hundred feet below, they could feel the oppressive heat of that distant land washing over them. Another led to a forest, though not one that could ever be mistaken for existing on earth. It was evidently night in that distant realm, and every so often a fat, glowing firefly the size of Hatton's fist would dart out of the portal, flit about for a few moments, and then retreat back to its darkened home, evidently finding earth not to its liking. One portal was entirely filled by a single bile-yellow eyeball with a bifurcated pupil. It frantically darted back and forth, as if trying to make sense of the scene unplaying beneath it. They could barely make out the mottled, bruised-purple flesh containing the leering eye. Where the boundaries of the portals met, they wavered and flickered, sometimes running together to expand one rift's size while the other twisted closed. In other places, the portals split apart like dividing cells— The image shone in their surface, running like melting butter, until the change was complete. "'Look,' Barbet said softly. The word pulled the attention of the soldiers away from the patchwork nightmare of the ceiling and saved what was left of their unravelling sanity. A lone figure floated in the centre of the cathedral. The hem of its tattered robe was a foot above the floor, and it held a long staff in its hand. It was an imposing sight— and the figure's flowing vestments and headdress gave it a priest-like air. Its back was to them, and its head was bowed as if it had come to the cathedral to pray. It was mockery. The prêtre, she motioned to the floating figure, then back to one of the stained-glass windows lining the walls. We must draw it back. Hatton knelt to the ground and lifted his rifle to his shoulder. Realising what he meant to do, the other two stepped back, Palfreyman holding his own rifle as Barbet defensively hefted her mace in front of her. He found the floating priest in his sights, but as he pulled back on the trigger, the priest whirled about and its veiled face stared straight into Hatton's gun sight. Hatton and his rifle both cried out in surprise, and the shot went wide, buzzing past the glowing blue light that hovered where a normal man's face should have been. The priest slammed its staff down onto the floor, and the world stopped crisp white lines, asymmetrical yet forming sequences, and designs of chaotic elegance raided out from the impact and etched themselves through the air, and folding themselves away into dimensions that pulled at their senses and thoughts. A line from the pattern happened to touch Hatton's right arm, just above the hand that held his rifle. When it touched him, the pattern spiralled out across his flesh, transforming it into salt. Hatton screamed, in equal parts pain and horror, as his arm dissolved before his eyes, and then those were gone as well. His rifle clattered to the ground with his clothes and ammo belt, their impact softened by the mound of salt that had once been a living, breathing man. Palfrey Man choked out a desperate, wheezing scream as he watched the gruesome transmutation. His eyes wide, he snapped his head back towards the priest, lifted his rifle, and began firing off a rapid staccato of panic shots at the man. Most went wild, but the few that came close to the priest disappeared into flickering portals that appeared in front of him to banish the offending bullets to other dimensions. Full back! Barbet was already moving toward the entrance of the cathedral. She held her mace out to defend herself, more out of habit than any hope that it would actually deflect the major's unwholesome magic. The priest raised his staff, and at his bidding... A long, sinuous tail-tip lashed down from one of the portals overhead and swept a wave of heavy wooden pews towards the two of them. Barbet spun to the side and smashed the first apart with a single mace-stroke, but the second knocked her sprawling amid splintered wreckage. Palfrey Man was too focused on the priest and barely had time to scream before the heavy wooden benches slammed into him, shattering his bones as he was tossed across the room like a rag-doll. "'You cannot fight the future,' The priest intoned, floating closer as Barbet tried to pull herself free of the debris. Despite the ringing in her ears, his voice was unmistakable in its strength and conviction. Not trying to fight, she groaned. Her right arm was hanging limp at her side, and in no small amount of pain, and everything was blurred and indistinct. She spat up a gout of blood, then immediately murmured a reflexive apology as she remembered she was still in a church. She moved slowly taxed to her limits, shuffling away from the priest to draw him closer. Her mace was buried somewhere beneath the shattered pews, but it hardly mattered at this point. Her only chance of survival was to trust that Edmonton had managed to get into position. Edmonton watched the battle play out through the scope of his rifle. He kept changing eyes, alternating between the one with the monocle that let him peer through the smoky walls of the cathedral and the one without, which let him tell where the windows were. When the benches were tossed into Barbet and palfreman, he very nearly despaired, but the guildwoman had stumbled to her feet and began leading the priest into his sights. He removed the monocle and settled in to wait. His rifle pointed at a stained-glass window as he waited for the prey to come into his sights. He knew that he had only a single moment to catch the priest in his sights and fire before the man noticed his presence and retaliated. Edmonton wasn't a spellcaster, but during the days of guild occupation, he had done a tour of duty in the Three Kingdoms and learned a few things about how a mage could protect themselves from a bullet. He had been personally and professionally embarrassed at the first time one of his bullets bounced off an invisible shield of force. Fortunately, some gunslingers in Malifo, the Ortega family he recalled, had hit upon the idea of crafting soulstones into bullets to bypass their target's magical defences, Evidently, that sort of thing was far more common in Malifaux than it was on earth. Edmonton had requisitioned a case of the Soulstone rifle shells, each one worth a small fortune in its own right, and had made certain to keep a handful of the rare shells on his person at any given time. He had managed to escape the grace of Dover with two of the rare shells. One of them was loaded into his rifle, ready to trace its way to the priest's skull. One way or the other, Edmonton didn't expect the second shell to come into play. He either made this shot or was a dead man. Edmonton adjusted his aim and tried not to let the excitement of the moment overwhelm him. Crack! The shot rang out as it wrote a line of light and smoke down the length of the cathedral. Magical barriers shimmered and cracked as a bullet pierced them, struck the priest in the head and carved a path of gleaming radiance through his skull. It might have been the most perfect shot in Charles Edmonton's life. Instead of exploding in a cloud of gore or dropping the priest to the ground, however, it passed straight through the man and buried itself deep in the cathedral's wall. The priest boiled with light, as if it was filled with the sun, as seen from deep under water. To Babet's blurry vision, the priest seemed to diminish. The crimson robes draped around its body lost some of their luster, and the glowing light that had served it as a mask faded away to reveal a human face hidden behind layers of bandages. The dwindling light brought with it an indescribable thinness, like a theatre backdrop that the eye sees as stone but the mind knows as paper. Barbet slowly leaned down and wrapped her fingers around the splintered leg of a pew. She doubted that there was enough strength left in her to charge, but whatever Edmonton had done clearly diminished the priest in some significant way. When the priest spoke, its voice had become unexceptional. Human. British. British. "'This is not the end,' it murmured as its body began to fade away like mist in sunlight. "'In his light I have found eternity.' Barbet was too tired to argue. "'Good on you, Zen.' The priest turned away from Barbet, but as it did so, it also was turned, like an image cast onto a glass pane that was rotated away. It grew transparent, and was gone.' One by one, the portals overhead began to blink out of existence, some quietly, some with sickening squelches of protest. The cathedral was silent. Charles! Good Lord, Charles, is that you? We thought you were lost after the grace of Dover went down. Gone with all hands, the dispatchers said. We despaired of you. "'Good afternoon, Captain Trent,' Edmonton said. "'Nice of you to come by.' Edmonton stood outside the doors of the cathedral while looking up. Two airships grappled on to the surrounding rooftops and troops swarmed down ladders, ran across the churned ground and set up machine-gun nests at the heads of the streets. A third ship lowered itself down over Ludgate and he heard the thump-cough of steam launchers as it fired its stabilising claws. Edmonton looked back around. Gone with almost all hands, he said, and all survivors but myself were lost after the crash. Showing, he surprised himself by needing a moment to breathe, showing uncommon valour in the face of battle. I shall have some names to be mentioned in the dispatches. I'll get one of the signalmen from the IAF ships down here, Trent decided. They've got a post almost set up, and they'll want to hear from you. They're arming a new task force to have another go at retaking Saint Catherine now that the blasted wind shear is easing off. Won't work, Edmonton said, shaking his head. Too near the river, and too vulnerable while the enemy has those winged flyers. Flyers, yes, that is a problem. We definitely need you there. Yes, you. Take a message to Lieutenant Horrocks this minute. We need to get word to them before the Saint Catherine assault begins. Hurry. Edmonton looked away, while Trent gave his orders. He otherwise would have missed it. Anyone else might have thought it was a trick of their eye, but Edmonton knew what he had seen. A long-tailed, burgundy-coloured coat slipping away from the top of the hill and vanishing down Paternoster Row. Are you smiling, Charles? He shook his head and returned his gaze to Trent. I suppose I am. He looked at Trent's quizzical expression and his back straightened. His voice grew clipped and brisk again. "'If you'd be so good as to escort me to the signal post, "'I'll brief you while we walk. "'There's a bank building down on Ludgate Circus "'that I think will make a good secondary staging point. "'I can lead a task force to it. "'And then there's a ship down on the Thames "'that will be in need of reinforcements. "'You're going to need staggered lines of defence all the way. "'We have enemies that can penetrate a front "'without crossing the actual line to do it.' "'Trent started to say something.' but Edmonton cut him off. No, just listen. I'll explain later. Bayonets should be fixed at all times. Nearly every enemy is able to close to grips with great speed. Grenadier support is going to be as important as machine gun support. The enemies I've met don't seem to care about suppression, and a lot of them have damned hard hides. Just like you, eh, Charles? Edmonton fixed the other man with a look. The sun was steadily burning away the top layers of fog, and his eyes were as blue as the sky above the next wave of airships circling in. Do get on with it, Trent. We have an awful lot of work to do to retake our city. That's all for another episode of the Earthside Echo. Join us next time for more Dispatches from Earthside.